And if you have your Bibles, you might like to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The title of my sermon today is Living by His Faithfulness. Living by His Faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to stop right there. So here, the author of Hebrews is saying that each one of us have a life before us to live. And he's likening this life that we have before us, however long or short it might be, as a race. He says that we should get rid of all the negative influences, the sinful influences that hold us back from doing everything that God has called us to do and becoming everything that God has called us to become. But in this race, he tells us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. In other words, in running the race of life, where should our attention be? Where should we locate our attention? Where should our focus be? Uh, it's not on the other competitors or those that are running with us, whether they're competitors or, or not. That's not where our eyes should be. It's not on the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves facing in life. That's not primarily where our eyes should be. But the author of Hebrews says that we should fix our eyes Locate our attention on Jesus because he is the one, as we sung in the, in, in the hymn just afterwards, we, we said that Jesus is in charge of our destiny. He's the Lord of the race. He's the beginning of the race and the end of the race. And he's the one that is with us in the race. So in order to live our lives and run the race of our lives properly, we should fix our attention on him. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where do you look or who do you look to in order to live a successful life on earth as a Christian? In the race that is your life, where have you found the places or the situations or the people that determine whether you're successful or not in life? You know, in Psychology, in, the pers in personality, personality psychology, they often talk about a locus of control. Locus is the Latin for place or location. And they speak about people's locus of control. You say, well, what does that mean? It means, where do people believe that their life's success or failure, where is that loc locus of control? Where does success come from? Where does failure come from. And this was developed by Julian B. Rotter in 1954 and has become an aspect of personality studies. So generally speaking, and I'm speaking in broad terms today obviously, generally speaking there are two types of people. Those that have an internal locus of control. These people, they believe that really life is all about seizing it yourself. It's what you can do. It, 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 these sort of people, if they pass an exam, they will say to themselves, well, I passed that exam because I studied hard. I have the intellectual abilities. They see that their future success is dependent 
on no one else but themselves. They have an internal location of control. They believe that the, the control of success or failure in life is what you can bring to it. But then we have a, another group that we're speaking about broadly again. And they don't have an internal locus of control. They don't believe it's all down to what I can do, my abilities, my faithfulness, my hard work. But instead, they look outside to see where the location of success or failure in their life's journey or their, their life's race comes from. And so they look out at other people and they see other people as the ones that can give them the ability to be successful or failure. So, so in that exam scenario, a person with an internal locus of control says, if I pass the exam, it's because I worked hard, I'm bright, I'm intellectual. If they fail the exam, an internal location of control, locus of control would say, I failed because I didn't try hard enough. It's my fault. It's all about me. In an external locus of control, if someone failed the exams, then they might say, well, that wasn't my fault that I failed the exams. I didn't have a decent teacher. The teacher didn't teach me what they should have taught me. They didn't prepare me for the exams. You see, in their understanding of failing the exams, they didn't blame themselves, they blamed someone external. Their teacher was, was, was to be blamed. And also, this type of person with an a, a external locus of control, if they passed the exam, they wouldn't necessarily say, well, that's because I studied hard, but they'd say, oh, I passed because I had a good teacher, or I passed because the exam was a little bit easier than I expected. Can you see there's two types of people here, generally speaking. One is saying, it's all about me, what I can do and what I can't do. If I'm successful, it's me, man-made, self-made. I did it. If I fail, I've got no one to blame but myself. An internal locus of life control. And then the other one, an external locus of control. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm successful, it's because of those that are around me. It's the breaks that they gave me. It, it's the situations that they helped me in. And if I fail, well, that's not my fault either. It's not my fault. I was brought up in an environment where there was no education or I, didn't, I wasn't given the breaks in life. So they see life and success really residing on those people that are around them, where the others, it's all about them on the inside. Let me ask you, are, are you... Would you say that you're more an internal locus of control person? It's all about what you can do. Or are you more of an external locus of control? It's all about how people can help you or hinder you. Do you often say to yourself things like, I often feel that I have little control over my life and what happens to me. Or do you think people rarely get what they deserve? Or it's not worth setting goals or making plans because too many things can happen that are outside my control. Life is a game of chance. Individuals have little influence over the, the events of their world. Well, it's all right for you because you had people that helped you. I never had anybody help me or I would have become what, what, what you have become. If you find yourself thinking these things or things like this, then the chances are you're more over to the locus of external control. Uh, the chances are that, that, that if you do well, it's because others have helped you, or if things go wrong, you're more likely to blame others. But if you find yourself saying things to yourself like, if I work hard and commit myself to a goal, I can achieve anything. 
There's no such thing as fate or destiny. Your, your life's journey and race is in your own hands. If you study hard and are well prepared, you will do well on exams. In the long run, people tend to get what they deserve in life. If you think in these terms, then you are moreover on the uh, locus of internal control. I'm laboring this because it's going to be important in a minute. Those that look outside to others for success and failure, and those that look on the inside for success and failure. I mentioned these things because we are talking about the Reformation. We have a conference, Luther 500, starting on Tuesday evening, as I've mentioned. And the reason that we're doing that is 500 years ago, in the month of October, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, 95 complaints. He had looked out at the state of the church around him, and he had found that it wasn't based in the early Christian teachings and the scriptures, and that there were so many things wrong that someone had to make a stand. So he nailed his 95 complaints or 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and this really was the catalyst this really ignited the Reformation, which was a powerful move of God. Many mistakes were made in it. Not everything was done properly, but in the midst of human error, the Reformation brought a back-to-the-Bible focus that many of us today, we are still a feeling, feeling the positive effects of this Reformation. But it wasn't always like that for Luther. To begin with, in his life of faith, he had what we would call an internal locus of control. When it came to salvation, Luther believed, to begin with, that it was all about what you could do to be saved, and that salvation was in the hands of the individual. He believed that although God had sent his son and that Jesus had died on the cross for the sins of the world, the attitude was, well, God has done that, but that's all God's ever going to do. Everything that God did for your salvation, he did 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's all there if you want it, but now it's up to you if you want to get into heaven. In his early life, Martin Luther had trained as a lawyer. But he had a powerful experience on a journey in the middle of the night where he found himself in a big thunder and lightning storm. And the lightning was striking only a few yards away from him. He cried out and said that if he was saved from that storm, that he would become a monk. He was saved and he did become a monk. And the reason that he became a monk is because in the medieval church, the idea was that life or your journey or your race, as we read in Hebrews, your race was really uh, all about whether you would get to heaven or not at the end of your journey. Whatever else happened in the race of your life, your race was to get saved, to have your sins dealt with and to be in a state of holiness acceptable for you to go into heaven. If you didn't die in an acceptable state before God to go into heaven, you would either end up in hell or the halfway place that they believed called purgatory. We'd have to go there for a bit where you got clean, dried and washed and, 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 and purified before you could go to heaven. So it was all about works. And this internal locus of control, who's in control of my salvation? Who's in control of whether I'll get to heaven or not? Who's in control of a relationship with God? Well, it's down to me. So in the medieval church, it was a focus on good works. 
good works, penance, holy living, how much you prayed, how much you gave, how many pilgrimages you did, all these good works. If you did enough good works, it was believed that you would do enough to get into heaven. That's why Luther became a monk, because the idea was, well, well where can you, who, what can you do in order to know that you'll do enough for you to get to heaven and be accepted by God? And the idea was, well, what could be better than being a monk or a nun, where you can take vows of, of chastity and, and poverty, and then you can do good works every day, spend all your time building up good, good, getting enough credit into your spiritual bank account that you might get saved. Well, Luther was all about that. He had an internal locus of control. He said, it's down to me. I, I can't blame anybody else if I don't get into heaven, but I can get into heaven if I work hard enough, do good works, do all the things the church tells me to do. I can make sure that I go to heaven when I die. And he was serious about this. He was more serious than all of the monks that were about him. Uh, he, he would get up early. He would stay up late at night praying, getting more credit into his bank account with God. He would do pilgrimages. He would do fastings. He would do all sorts of difficult things in order to show God that he was grateful for him sending his son and get enough credit to be accepted by God. Many of the other monks thought that he was uh, losing his mind uh, with all this focus on constantly striving and doing more, always wanting to do more. How will I know that I will get into heaven? I need to do more and, and more fastings, more prayers, uh, more works, more pilgrimages, more, more, more. That's what he was doing. Now, that was looking to himself for salvation. And we can find that this, this, this also happened in the, in the New Testament. And it can happen two ways. If you believe it's down to you to get to heaven, then two things will happen. You'll be like Luther, almost going crazy, trying to know whether God accepts you and whether you're doing enough to get into heaven. Or you will get to a place where you will say, oh, I think I've done it. And we find this in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus used to speak about Pharisees. Now, there were some very powerful Pharisees that became Christians that followed Jesus. But by and large, at the time, the Pharisees, they, they were the ones that were following the Old Testament law closest. And many of them had got to a place where they felt that they were following the Old Testament law so closely that they had a guarantee that they were holy enough to be right with God. And that's the danger when you have an internal locus of control for your journey of life or for how you deal with God. You say, it's all down to me. You either think it's too hard and you give up. It's my fault. It's too hard. I'll give up on God because I can't do it. Or you begin to get a little bit self-righteous. You begin to say, hey, you know what? I think God's pretty pleased with me. I mean, I do more than those that are around me. And you begin to uh, judge your spirituality by looking at those around you. And you think, you know, I give more than them. I, I go to church more than them. I'm more charitable than they are. And you begin to have a superiority complex. And you begin to say, do you know what, Lord? I, I think I'm one of your special servants. 
Look at all the things that I've done for you. And you see Jesus talking about that, don't you? You have the, the Pharisee, and, uh, and when he brings his gift, there's trumpets playing. He's got one of those big charity checks with a thousand pounds on so that everybody can see as he takes it to the off offering because he's righteous. Look what he's done. Look how generous he is. And then Jesus compared him with the widow's mite who had nothing and just quietly put in what she, what she had. Or those that were trumpeting their prayers, trumpeting how spiritual they were uh, and, then they, uh, uh, and, and how better they were than everybody else. And then the person who quietly, when nobody was looking, shut the door and just prayed to God. You see, the danger was with this internal locus of salvation control that you think it's all down to you and that you trust in your work, your righteousness, your charitable giving. You know, this happens even in the world outside the church. If you ask people, you know, if there was a God and if there was a heaven, do you think he'd let you in? And the majority of people they found think that he would. They, they realise they're not perfect, but they often think they're a cut above the rest that are around them. It's the same sort of internal locus of control. Now, as well as there being people during the medieval church that were doing it, it was all down to me. God's done all he's going to do. Down to me to be holy. Down to me to pray. Down to me to, to, to be righteous. Down to me to do holy things. And all the church tells me, and if I do it, I'll get into heaven. As well as the internal locus of control, it's down to me. There were also those in the medieval that had what we referenced to as an internal locus of spiritual, external locus, sorry, of spiritual control. In other words, they didn't think it was down to them to get into heaven, but they thought that getting into heaven really depended on those that were around them. And so they, uh, for example, many of them put their trust in the Pope and in what was at the time called indulgences. You say, well, what were indulgences? Well, indulgences was the last straw for Luther. That's why he began to complain and nail his complaints against the door to be dealt with. Indulgences, this is because that they believed at the time that the Pope is what we call the vicar of Christ on earth. In other words, he is 100% Christ's representative on earth and has within his own, uh, his, his own position the authority to forgive sins however much he wants and to whoever he wants. Now, at the time, the Pope was on a big fundraising building project for St. Uh, Peter's in Rome. And so what, would ha what, what, what they would do is that these monks would go along from town to town fundraising. And this is how they'd fundraise. They would have special papers called indulgences that came with the authority of the Pope. And these indulgences, they were, it, was like, um, it was like discount salvation. So in other words, if you paid a certain amount into the building fund, you could get 20% off your sins. 10% off your sins. And if you had someone who had died, uh, a grandfather, grandmother, and, and the idea was they weren't quite in heaven yet, they were probably spending a little bit of time in purgatory getting sorted, well, you could get 20% off their time in, in purgatory. Literally, it was like that. And so people were thinking, well, this is, this is great. I don't have to do anything, really, to get into heaven. I, I just need one of these pieces of paper from the Pope, and I get discounted salvation. So, so whatever the Pope says, that's okay for me. How much? Oh, that's cheap. That's cheap. I don't have to change my lifestyle. I just have to keep buying these papers that keep taking off my sins. This idea that, that you had to get enough sins, well, then, if the Pope can, can forgive my sins for a bit of money, then, then I'll put my trust in him. 
Others put their trust too much in priests. The idea was that the Roman Catholic priest had power again to forgive your sins. So if you went to confess your sins to a priest, at the end he could give you absolution, which meant that he had the authority to remove your sins. You could put your trust in the Mass. You could go to the Mass and you could take the bread, which is uh, seen as transformed magically into the body of Jesus or the blood. You take that, what happens? You get points. You get points for taking it. You get points, grace points, for when the, when the priest absolves you. You, you go to the masses, you, you put your trust in the priest, he'll make sure I get into heaven. You put your trust in the Pope, and also you put your trust in the saints. So in those days and medieval times, people believed that the saints could help them get into heaven. The saints that had died and were already in heaven. And this was the idea of this, that in order to get into heaven, you had to have enough points enough holiness points, enough grace points to get into heaven. Now, the idea is, is that most people didn't have enough holiness points to get into heaven. That's why they would go to the Pope and get an indulgence or get the priest to, to take some off through forgiveness of sins. But also the idea was that these saints, these saints that were in heaven, they, when they lived on earth, the idea was they didn't just get enough points for themselves. They got more than enough to get into heaven. Uh, they, they were totally in credit in their bank account of holiness when it came to God. And so the idea was a saint would go into heaven and, uh, and they would get in and they would have an abundance of good works. And so you could get in touch with a saint by speaking to them, lighting a candle in front of their statue, and you could say, Oi, Saint so-and-so, could I have a bit of those extra points that you got down in my life? Because you, you, you got so many good works that, that you got into heaven and some. So can I have a bit of that and some in my life? And they had saints for every aspect of life, didn't they? And you would go to those saints and you would ask them out of their fullness of good works and overabundance of good works to send a few your way. And so here, here is a, a group of people that were looking to others for them to get saved. Of course, the biggest saint that people looked for, for help, was Mary. Because there was an idea that Mary had become queen of heaven and that Jesus had turned into this sort of judging Jesus. But if you go to his mom, she might have some influence with you. Say a few good words in his ear on your behalf. This came from the great wedding of Cana miracle. Do you remember that? They'd run out of wine and uh, someone said, we need to go and send someone out to Aldi to get some more wine. We didn't know they would drink so much. And said, Aldi shut, well, what are we going to do? And someone said, well, maybe Jesus can help. Go and ask his mum to have a word with him, a quiet word with him. So they said, Mary got no wine. Would you mind having a word with Jesus? So Mary comes up and says, son, I've run out. Aldi's shut. Can't you do anything? And Jesus said, of course, whatever you say, mum, I'm totally under your influence. Uh, I've got, I've got, I've got your apron uh, strings around me and you just say it and I'll do it. No, he said, what have I got to do with you, woman? My hour has not yet come. So at first he said, whoa, I'm not doing this because you're anything special. Know that I'm going to do this because my father has told me to do it. But out of this came this idea that Mary could put in a good word for you in her son's ear and that she was more maternal than Jesus, more open to help you, more merciful. So go to her and she'll help you get into heaven. 
So can you see here, again, I'm speaking in very broad terms today, but when it came to getting saved, and when it came to living the Christian life, you have this type of individual where it's all down to me. God's done all he's going to do. It's down to me now to do it. And if I don't do it, I won't get saved. Nothing will happen. And this pressure, 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 believe, do, you've got to do it. God's not going to do it. He's left it to you. And then on the other side, you've got this, well, you know, there's other people that I can trust. They'll help me um, get into, into heaven. Well, I want to say to you today that if you have an internal locus of control, if you think that success in life and in spirituality comes primarily from what you can do, you're going to find yourself in a very difficult place. But I also want to address those of you that may err on the side of having an external locus of control in your life, but also in your spiritual understanding of God. In other words, you think it's all down to other people. Oh, the pastor will help, will, will, will pray for you and it'll all, it'll all sort out. Or oh, the cell leaders, the one that, oh, the, the church, and you, 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 you blame the church if things go wrong, or, or you, you bless the church if things go right. Uh, it's never your fault, it, it, but those are the, you've got this external thing. I want to say that internal locus of control for successful life will not work, and neither will an external. What I believe that we need is a Christ-centered locus of control, of life and spirituality, where we aren't in our daily lives looking to self to produce success in our race of life, but neither are we blaming or over-relying on other people to bring us success in our race of life, both spiritual, career, or whatever it is. But instead, we go back to what we read in Hebrews, that's talked about uh, running our race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You know, this is what happened to Martin Luther. He had a radical change in his understanding of the location of where the control was that brought salvation and a successful life. The key verse that I'm going to turn to that changed his life was Romans 1 verse 17. Romans 1 verse 17, I'll read from verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live both by faith. Well, sometimes it's translated, but the just shall live by faith. Well, when Paul quoted the just shall live by faith, he was actually quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And this is important because Habakkuk is a prophet and he's gone to God because everything is going wrong and it looks like God has abandoned the people. And so Habakkuk says, what's happening, God? You've just told me that things are going to get worse than they're going to get better, but what about your promises? What are we to do? Are you going to come through for us? What are we to believe? And so Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 says, verse 2 says, And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. 
for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Two, t- two types of people. The proud one. The proud one is one with a, a very high internal locus of control. It's all down to them. They don't need God. They'll sort it out themselves. Thank you very much. But here's the righteous one or the just one who will live by his faith. Now, when you read that, the righteous will live by his faith, you might misunderstand it. It sounds like if you're going to live, you have to believe more. You have to act more. You have to be obedient more. You're going to live by your faith. It's all down to the power of your believing within you. But you can translate this a different way. And the early rabbis in Jesus' time understood it differently. Instead of the righteous shall live by his faith, you can read it like this. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. So all of a sudden, the locus of control is changed from what you can do to what he can do. And instead of of believing it's all down to you, you begin to change and say, do you know what? Is God trustworthy or not? Is Jesus to be trusted or not? God said to Habakkuk, I've said it, it'll come to pass. It'll get worse before it gets better, but you're going to just have to live your daily life through these difficult times, trusting that I'm faithful, that if I've promised it at the right time, It'll come to pass. And your decisions every day, what you do and how you run your race are not dependent so much on you, but on the fact that I'm faithful. You get up in the morning, God is faithful. You go into a difficult situation at work, God is faithful. Everything goes wrong when you hoped it go right, God is faithful. It's not the end. He's the the beginning and the end. You know, it reminds me of the story of a fair. And in this fair, they had a big air balloon with a basket on the bottom and you could pay money and go for little air balloon rides. Well, this air balloon was there and it was anchored by a number of ropes to the ground so it wouldn't fly off and it was there for people to ride in. Well, what happened was a storm suddenly blew into the fair and these great gusts of wind blew in. And the, the, the people that were helping in the fair, the fair hands, realised there was a danger that the balloon might be carried off. So what they did is they ran to it and they grabbed the rope that anchored the basket down into the ground and they held on to it. But then came a huge big gust of wind that, that in one gust just lifted and pulled out of the anchor the uh, balloon and thrust it right up into the air. The problem was the men had been holding on to the different ropes so strongly that they were taken unaware. Before they realised it, they were holding on to the rope and they were too high to let go. Well, they went higher and higher in the air and people began to get concerned. These men that were holding on to the ropes, how long could they survive? How much strength did they have to hold on to that rope? Well, the weakest to the strongest began to lose grip. And one by one, they began to hold on. They could hold on no longer. They didn't have enough strength. And the weakest fell to his death. The next weakest fell to his death until all had fallen except one who was holding on. As the ambulance was following this balloon as it traveled over the countryside, it seemed incredible. 
impossible that this man would be able to hold on to that rope for so long. Nobody could understand it. He must have had superhuman strength or had three Weetabix in the morning or something like that. Who knows? Well, eventually, after hours and hours, the wind abated and the uh, balloon began to come down to the ground. The ambulance rushed towards it in the field, thinking that this man, as soon as he hit the ground, would collapse and need every bit of medical help possible to, to hope that he would recover. But as the rope hit the ground and the man's feet hit the ground, he simply walked away, and he was as strong as the first moment that he had grabbed hold of the rope. And the medical people came to him and said, we don't understand this, this is incredible. How could you have held on to that rope, superhuman-like, for all that time, and yet you're as physically fit and as strong uh, and, and not tired as all, as all as the moment that it took off? And the man said, well, you see, as soon as you went up, I realized I wouldn't be able to hold on to this rope. I'm the weakest out of all the men that held on to this rope. So what I did is I climbed up a little bit and I got some of the loose rope and I tied it around me. You see, I wasn't holding on to the rope. The rope was holding me. This is what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the fact that there's people that are holding on and holding on with all their strength when really it's Jesus holding on to you. This is why the just shall live by his faithfulness. So no longer is it primarily dependent on you to believe and to do and to this and that, like Luther did in the early times. But now you realize that it's all about somebody else who is totally faithful, whose plan for your life is perfect. In fact, his plan for your life is so perfect, it's even taken in consideration your imperfections and is still perfect. That he's totally underneath you, that he's the beginning and the end, he's the foundation, and that he is the Lord of the race of life. This means that you're no longer looking into yourself thinking, can I do it? You'll either become proud and think you're better than others, or you will give up. You say, I just can't do this anymore. It's too hard. An internal locus of control. This also means that you can't go around blaming everybody for your lot in life. Well, if they hadn't done this, and the perpetual victim, I know there are victims in life, but you know what I'm saying, an attitude. Oh, well, if I'd had what you'd had, if I'd been born there, if I'd done that, and, and just excusing your life away with an external locus of control, or, or, or putting your trust in people around you, the officials around you, the teachers around you, the church people around you, and thinking my life will depend on whether they give me the breaks. No, now you find that although these things are important, your, your, your locus of control is a person, it's Jesus. You're focused on him, like Hebrew said, your eyes are focused on him. And now you're saying, you know what? He's in control. He's in control. I am free to do my best, but my life does not rely on me doing my best. It relies on the fact that he is doing his best for me every day. It gives you a freedom, a knowledge that you can face whatever you have to face on life, knowing that God is Lord of whatever you face, no matter how difficult it might be. He's in control. It means a new reliance that no longer you're relying on self, or no longer you're totally relying on those around you. If they help, great. But, but even where people help, you're looking through them and saying, Lord, you're my helper. You're my reward. You're in charge. You're in control. Whatever happens, you are Lord. That confession that Jesus is Lord is incredible because it means he's Lord of the little as well as the big. 
It means he's Lord of the bad as well as the good. It means he can be trusted during the difficult times as well as the good times. It means that your destiny is wrapped up in a person. I remember once I was calling on the Holy Spirit to come in power. I said, Lord, we need your help. Lord, we need your strength. Holy Spirit, need your wisdom. More of you, Lord. More of your influence in Kensington Temple. More of your influence in your, in your lives. And there's nothing wrong in praying that. And we should, and we should do more. And I was doing that, calling on the Holy Spirit to come and to work in our lives because he is God's executive on earth. He's God Almighty at work on earth. So I'm calling on him. And one time, as I'm calling on him, I hear the Holy Spirit speak to me very powerfully, and, and I'm saying, come Lord, come, come again. I'm calling on him. And I heard him speak like a thunderbolt in my spirit. He said, I go where I'm sent. And I stopped and I immediately knew. You go where you sent. I've been spending so much time asking the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit reminded me. There's nothing wrong with what I was doing, by the way. But the Holy Spirit reminded me that he goes wherever Jesus sends him to go. That Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will not speak of his own, like Jesus did not speak of his own, but only what the Father gave him. The Holy Spirit hasn't come to glorify himself. The Holy Spirit has come to bring Jesus, come to bring the words of Jesus, come to, bring, to, to do the commands that Jesus has commanded from heaven. And, and it was good because I know there's nothing wrong with calling on the Holy Spirit. We need to do far more, more of it. But I was very grateful that the Holy Spirit, which is his role, would point me back to Jesus. Almost say, look, you need to go to, to Jesus too. You're talking to me, but you, Jesus is the one who sends. You need to rely on him. And that was a breakthrough in my relationship with the Lord. And I found myself becoming even more Christ-centered. And I found myself realizing that, that my race that I'm running on earth, myself and with you and you and others, it's, it's all about Jesus. And that if I look to Jesus, get rid of the things that are weighing me down, but keep my eyes on him. It's a revolutionize your life. You'll know that if, if you need change, go to Jesus. You'll know that your future depends on Jesus. You'll know that, that, that your, defense, your defense, your protection depends on Jesus. You, Jesus, 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 Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. It's him at the beginning. It's him at the end. It's him in the middle. It's him in the good days. It's him in the bad days. It's him in your hour of need. It's him to be thanked in your hour of victory. It's him. It's him. It's him. He's the beginning of all things, the end of all things. He's the savior of the world. He's the lover of mankind. He became man so that God would know what man went through and yet without sin. He's alive. He said it'd be better he would go to heaven so that we could all equally have access to him in prayer. He wasn't in one location on earth that we all had to rush to, but now he's located at the right hand of the Father at the center of the universe. Everything happens by his command and, and he is totally in control and even the evil things that take place will one day be turned to his hand for the good. The most evil act of history was to put to death the innocent Son of God and yet at that one evil act of killing Jesus was also the act that God used to save everyone who believes. 